0: I am so excited. So I am here today with Heather Noggle, and I don't know very much about her cancer journey, except it was a really long time ago. So she is going to take us all the way back there. Heather, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story.
1: Well, thanks for having me. Thank you.
0: So how long ago?
1: 1991. So November of 1991, I had surgery. Wow. I was diagnosed with a tumor in, in October and the long wait, the long agonizing wait between the, you have a tumor and we're going to take the thing out.
0: Okay. We got to go back before that. <laughs> we, we can go back So how old that. were you?
1: I was 19, 19 years old.
0: You were, you were 19 years old. Um, what symptoms did you have if if any? Like what what was what was going on prior to even finding out you had a tumor?
1: There were no symptoms until it started its a facial tumor and so it started to poke out my face. I had no pain, I had no change in my activities. I was a normal healthy 19-year-old and so we noticed, oh there's there's a cyst cuz I'm one of those people who made cysts. I think there are just some of us who do that. You know, I had them on my wrist. I would have a ganglion every once in a while. Wouldn't be a big deal. Had been very healthy up until that point. And so I'm in college and I had a meal with my parents in September. And then I pointed out what was going on with my face. And I'm like, go to the doctor, you know, do that. Come see our family doctor. And not a big deal. Where
0: was it on your face? So it's. Where was it it on your face? exactly? Right over here poking out
1: on the right side, the high cheekbone area to close to the ear near the, where that your lobe is, is where it's starting to poke out for me.
0: Okay. And so I can see why, if you'd had cyst in the past, that makes sense. When you go to get it checked out, I mean, do you just go to the campus doctor? Do you go back home <laughs> to your doctor?
1: I went to my mom's doctor. Cause I was so healthy. I didn't even have one, you know, at that, that point it, He just didn't really at 19 when you're healthy, you don't think about the doctor. So went to my mom's doctor and and she looked at it and nodded her head and had the furrow brow effect of you need to see a specialist. And then I think it became somewhat real of there might be something wrong here that isn't just uh, we drain the thing and you go on with life. And so remember, it's 1991. I went to see an ear, nose, and throat doctor. So an ENT or otorhinolaryngologist is what I think they they have the official terminology. Here's a very nice gentleman, a little little younger then than I am now. And he explained that it was a tumor and that it would need to come out. And they got a very long needle. Whoa, whoa, whoa. How
0: did he know it was a tumor?
1: He made the feel of it. And so he he says, this is a tumor. It doesn't No scan? Not in 1991.
0: Wow. So what they do with that, because it's solid.
1: He knew. It's a solid tumor. Right. And back then, and nowadays they would ultrasound it or they would MRI it. But back then the procedure was to get Mm. the long needle. I mean, really like straight out of star wars princess leia and the torture kit that darth vader brings the needle that there's a probe (laughs) yeah and it comes out it's 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 like this long it's and three shots of that to take samples of the tumor and sent me on my way and so i remember being really kind of freaked out by that and i was a music major And I had a performance. And so I remember when we started talking about this will have to come out. And there may be, because it's so long ago, I may be a little fuzzy on the appointments and how they they run together. So they did the biopsy on those three shots through through the face and it came back benign. Because at this point, they can only sample a portion of the tumor. And so, you know, I'm like, oh, I'm fine. Okay. Mm -hmm. I've got a concert I've got to do. Then we'll have the surgery. Surgery, you know, the scar is going to be like that. It'll be fine. Go on as much as I can through the long waiting period of, okay, this is now early October. Surgery is set for November 1st. So I have this four week period where I'm just numb. And I think that that's normal for anybody, especially when you're going to have surgery at a young age, and it's on a part where people will see it. So at that point, I was more concerned with how I was going to look when this was done than even the fact that there might be something actually wrong with me beyond just this anybody in my mind, benign tumor. What I could see is what I thought it was.
0: So how visible was it? Did other people notice it? I mean, if they did, they didn't say, okay. So you, they, they, the tissue comes back benign, mm-hmm. you're moving forward with surgery, yeah. then what happens?
1: Well, I want to speak to, because I think this is probably pretty common, if you've got a weight, that that's just torture. If, if you've got a weight between when you're diagnosed, whether it's benign tumor has to come out. Or it's a, gosh, this is malignant and we've got to start treatment, but we can't do that for three weeks. You know, whatever it is, that whole period, I I think the waiting is just the the earliest form of torture. And so I would go to class and then I would come back to my dorm room. And if I wasn't working that night, I would sit there and play solitaire until I was numb because that was my healthy way of dealing. And everybody, you know, some people would deal with it in unhealthy ways. Other people would deal with it in super healthy ways, I'm sure, like taking long walks, going to the gym. I played solitaire.
0: It was November With cards. I just want to add for for our Gen Z.
1: Oh, Gen Z. I can shuffle like a blackjack dealer. Yeah. (laughs) I love it. Me too.
0: (laughs) So the day arrives. Um, Okay. So the day comes.
1: Yeah. And I go in. And the doctor does the prep. I'd had one other surgery before I had a knee problem back when I was 13. So I knew kind of what to expect there. My parents are there. And I had gone in to see one of my professors to prepare. You know, I'm going to be out because of surgery. It was an honors economics class. And he was teaching it in derivatives, and I've never had calculus. So I was struggling in his class already. And when I, all the professors, when I preemptively go and I say to them, "I'm going to be out, I have a tumor, I'm getting it removed." They were all very nice, Make up your assignments to this. But this guy was not so nice. He said, "Well, if you're going to miss more than one class, you ought to drop." So I went in, this is, this is a Tuesday. I've told him that surgery's on Friday. I went in on Friday for surgery, Friday, November 1st with my parents. And I go in and I, they put me out. And when I come back, they say that was a six and a half hour surgery. The tumor was the size of a softball. <laughs> it was wrapped oh, around your Heather. facial nerve. Holy shit. They they had said there was a small chance I wouldn't be able to smile ever again coming out of the surgery and that any damage I had six months later. So there is all this prep to it that this could be really bad, but we don't expect it will be. But he spent six and a half hours scraping tumor off my nerve instead of cutting it. And, yeah. Yeah. So I came out of the surgery, the entire right side of my face does not move. I have a scar, which I can show everybody if they're interested, but with the lighting, you won't see it that well. And I've also had it revised, but I have a nine and a half inch scar to take, you know, the softball size tumor out. And then they said, of course, by the way, there's a suspicious spot. We're going to send it to pathology because we're not sure. So it was close to the margin. So you go in, you think you have a benign tumor. You think the scar is not going to be that big of a deal. And I'm thinking, okay, whatever, I can get past this. And the, sh- the, the first shock there is, okay, <laughs> new hurdle. Now we're looking at cancer potentially. And back in 1991, there is right. no public internet. There's none of all the things that we enjoy and how we connect with people. Right. There is simply just you, your family, and your immediate family and friends. And so it took right. two weeks to get pathology back, which I don't think that was all that abnormal then, but also with the fact that I think it probably took several people to look at it and say, is this, isn't this, what is it? And when it came back, they said, Yeah. That's right. malignant.
0: What kind of cancer was it, so people it's
1: understand? Salivary gland cancer, the parotid gland, and so my official diagnosis at that point was malignant mixed tumors. So this particular type of cancer comes on in a benign tumor that gathers cancer cells because it's been there a while. They had figured in the doctor's office when they took it out and could see everything that I'd been growing this tumor since I was twelve. So obviously environmental on a 12 year old
0: to gather. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, but, but slow growing, I mean, seven Mm -hmm. years. Yeah. Did you not feel, um, any, no compression, no sinus pressure, nothing like that? No,
1: it was probably pretty fast growing at the end because between when I showed it to my parents and when I had it taken out, it grew quite a bit. So at that point, all the life decisions, okay. it's the perfect time in life to have cancer. I'm fully grown. So I'm, I'm a grown woman, but I'm at home. In, well, I'm not at home. I'm living on campus, but I'm in college. So it's an interruptible life. I don't have kids to care for. Right. I'm strong. I'm healthy. So in that regard, it's the perfect time. Uh, on the flip side, life expectancy, if we take care of this, is a very long time past 19. So side effects are going to be most of the things we're going to be talking about today is what happens when you're a long-term survivor. So I want to go back to this idea, though, of no internet. So with no internet, what that means is you tell everybody, I had, I had it out, I'm fine, and I'm still at that point in the two weeks thinking, okay, I'm probably fine. And I tell everybody I'm done. And I don't have the heart and the emotion to go through and tell all the people again, no, I'm not done yet. There's just something about that. It almost feels disingenuous. And so I just sort of, I ended up dropping off the face of the earth for a semester and popping up the next semester later. So there weren't a lot of people who really knew because that was the way I dealt with it back then.
0: I'm curious where, how far from uh, home did you go to school? Like where was home? Where was school? It was
1: here. So about five miles from where my parents live is where it was. So it was not difficult for me to move back home.
0: Okay, but it wouldn't have been difficult for people to realize that you were gone either, right? You know, it's college. I mean, they knew you lived close by. Yeah, it it just—it was the way
1: I I dealt with it. I didn't want to make that big of a deal. There were a few people I told.
0: So you you wake up, you have the scar, you find you find out this is cancer, and you've already had this massive surgery. So what is the treatment plan? back here in the 1991 what what were they going to do
1: well my doctor sent me to MD Anderson because not only is all all of that true but also prodded tumors are very rarely cancerous so the type of, of that's another reason why we didn't think there would be an issue is because they're just the rare, it's a rare cancer. So that was the treatment plan was first go to MD Anderson and then make a decision. Do you want to be treated in Houston or do you want to come back home and be treated? Keep in mind also that the right side of my face does not work. (laughs) So throughout all this and then the giant scar and all this stuff. And I want to go back just to finish this thought with my professor because it's funny. So the one moment of joy in all of this is that surgery was on a Friday. On Tuesday in that class, I had a test. I obviously wasn't there. I'm drugged out of my mind. On Thursday, I'm sitting in his class with 27 staples in my neck, a half my face that doesn't move, and a turtleneck because it's November. My dad took me. I'm still drugged out of my mind because I didn't want to drop his class. And so I sat down in the back And 19-year-old me. I'm sitting in the back taking notes on a, you know, going over the test. Evidently, everybody did terribly. And I waited until every last person left that room. And then I went up to this professor and I said, with half my face, I pulled down the turtleneck. And I looked him in the eye and I said, I had it done. <laughs> he was very kind after that.
0: Oh, good. I'm so glad. I was afraid he was going to be horrible or mean or... Oh, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, he saw that. Did you continue to go to school?
1: There were only three weeks left, so yeah. Okay. I, I finished that out the sense. semester, and then the treatment, I went straight to MD Anderson almost. The treatment plan from there, I had to have my wisdom teeth out because you can't do radiation to head and neck, and they figured radiation would be part of what they needed to do. If you still have a chance of having to have surgery, they figure out which teeth you have to have removed considering long life ahead because we were pretty sure I was going to be okay in time. And so it was more from a perspective of making sure it doesn't come back.
0: Okay. So what was the treatment plan?
1: Yeah. At MD Anderson, they decided that I needed the radiation. They didn't figure for this type of tumor that chemo would make a difference. And so we were going to go with with radiation all along because it didn't spread. It was near the margin, but not spread to the lymph nodes. And so it was just a matter of what seemed to be very simple is get these wisdom teeth out of here and get treated with radiation. And so that's what we did. I ended up moving back home with my parents and then just working and being treated. And the idea, again, is just, okay, part of this is going to suck because, you know, the technology back then, is the technology back then, they're much more targeted now. So my field of radiation was actually all the way through here and back down here, all the way to my shoulder. So nowadays, I'm pretty sure it would be much wow. smaller than that. And so I have, back then, what they also used to do is they would tattoo you. And I don't think in such a visible place, the face, the head, the neck, that they tattoo you anymore on head and neck cancers. From what I've seen is there are masks and very detailed how they do proton radiation, et cetera. Well, there wasn't that. So I have funky tattoos. I actually used to, before they revised my scar, I had a neck tattoo. So I'm somebody I can walk around and say, I used to have a neck tattoo. Yeah. (laughs) So... I used to have a neck tattoo. Oh, I had no. it removed, but I didn't didn't ask for that. So, yeah. So I would go in in the morning and do the radiation. Which you know, the first three weeks, you still think you're invincible because you know there wasn't a whole lot of communication. I didn't really get along with my oncologist very well. I think he thought I was bratty, and he was not a good communicator. And so I had a lot of questions. I'm just a inquisitive type of person. And he didn't really want to answer that because I think he was used to his patients thinking he was God. And I suspect that a lot of young people who are inquisitive might run into something like that and feel disregarded or feel like, you know, I definitely felt that so first three weeks I'm fine I'm out taking six mile walks I'm doing this I'm doing that and then it hit like a freight train (laughs) so the radiation of the day I'm very fair skinned and I started to burn and all the things that happen they, they just happen I I'm in communication with other people who have this type of cancer now it doesn't seem quite as brutal as it was then which is good news So at about week four, my skin was really starting to burn. I'm really fair skinned. And if I get any sun exposure, then I start to burn. And that was starting to come on in earnest. And that's your face. And I'm still not really moving on the right side. I'm starting to heal just a little bit, but not much. I could close my eyes at that point. And then also this particular type of radiation kills taste buds. And you never know, I guess, which one it's going to kill. It could kill them all, which would be relatively easy because then food just doesn't have taste. For me, it killed everything but salt. So you could pick up a glass of water and it would taste like salt. You could pick up a fork and you would taste metal and salt because metal was the one thing you could taste. So switching to plastic was the good advice they gave for there because then it was just at least just salt. So I really had a, a struggle with eating everything that tastes like salt because I hadn't eating a version already, texture. I don't drink soda or anything. I'm very texture-eating sort of person. So it took a few weeks to navigate that. And in the meantime, they're yelling at me for losing weight and all sorts of things <laughs> that go along with that. But that last three weeks, we had to delay treatment because I was so burned. And I think that that happens sometimes. And so my last three were put off. And at that point, cause I wasn't eating well and I wasn't dealing well, I don't really remember those three weeks very well. So the first three weeks were like, they were nothing. And then the last three, not a whole lot of memory there, but you know, looking back, that's pretty easy, right? Just six weeks of radiation, go on with your life.
0: <laughs> but didn't you say that you were supposed to have radiation three more times that they delayed it?
1: Yeah, there are 30 treatments over six six weeks. So it's supposed to be five days, two days rest, five days. So three treatments got delayed just because my skin couldn't, the last three, it, it just couldn't tolerate it. So they put an extra two-day break in there and then the, the two-day weekend. And so I had five days off, I think is how that worked. And then I had the last three. So by March, middle of March, 1992, I was done with official cancer treatment. So nice and easy, kind of.
0: Okay. Okay. So what, what happened at that point? One, did your taste come back to normal and not just salt? Um, and, and two, you know, did you go back to school?
1: Yeah. At that point in March, no, I did not go back to school because it's mid-semester. So I'd already, not knowing what I was facing, I took that semester off and just worked. And that was just simpler to do that that way. I, thought at the time. And and so during that time period, did my taste come back? It took several weeks and not knowing whether they would because radiation, at least that type of radiation got worse over time. So I finished radiation after six weeks and it continued to worsen for three more weeks. So I felt worse three weeks after when I was done. And then I gradually started to feel better. And I think it was mid May to late May before I actually ate something that tasted somewhat normal right around three weeks after radiation we started to notice that if i tried to eat things that tasted somewhat salty i that was better so instead of trying to work against it eat an apple that tastes like salt if i ate for instance like breaded mushrooms then that would be okay because they were kind of salty or mushrooms just things that went well with salt so you anything you you can adapt and you can adjust and get through and at probably June, I was starting to feel like myself again, but not fully. It took, I would say just from that six weeks of radiation and the weight loss and the problems with that, it took a full year for my mostly healthy self to really be back to me.
0: Did you choose to go back to school
1: that fall? Yeah. Yeah, I did. I was a music major and and that's by... About six to seven months after treatment, I'm back to about 97%. I can smile okay. You can see it takes a little more effort than probably for a typical person. And I'm a little more frowny than most people because of that. But I did go back to school. I was able to, I had some scholarships and through letters ahead of time, I was able to say, I'll be back. This is how I'll be back. This is why I'm gone. And, And just about everybody dealt with that pretty well. And I got back the things I had lost and I went back to campus and tried to resume life. But With a big interrupt like that, you change who you are between 19 and 20. I think I probably grew up 10 years. Mm -hmm. You know, it just, I'm not the same person. I don't have the same interests. I don't have the same problems. And then there's always, I would say the the bit of anxiety till you hit the five years past of, is this coming back? And they had said, if this comes back, you're going to be massively disfigured. So that that's in my brain. I already had the, the original scar I had here looked like somebody took a nine inch worm, like that purple, believe. and put it on my neck. Because they're trying to save my facial function in my life. They're not too worried about how I look. So a year after that, I went in and had that revised so that I'd look a little more normal.
0: It's funny I to be honest. They really said that to you though. If it comes back, you'll. I'm sure that's my language, but maybe not.
1: (laughs) Just that there's nothing left to take out of there. When I'm really lean, you can see parts of my face that I'm missing. Mm -hmm. Also, this helps because it's covering it. But you can definitely look at me and see that something's a little off there on that woman. But that's really pretty good considering what they did to me. And all that was necessary. So... For the first in the early parts of the years, it's who am I and do I look normal enough to have a normal life? And then over time, you, I think that we just become who we're meant to be. And that's a very gradual process and, and it no longer matters.
0: So Heather, tell us about, it's, it's been over three decades, <laughs> about any long-term side effects that you have.
1: Sure. I have very low saliva from the surgery and then the radiation atop that because the product is a water producing salivary gland. And so I cannot eat without water and that's okay. That's fixable. In 1991, that was a little scary because bottled water wasn't really a thing, and people carrying water everywhere they went wasn't a thing either, and now it is. So it's just easy, and it's very surmountable, not a problem. But it does mean um, that I have to take extraordinarily good care of my teeth because the, when you're low on water, the acid to water ratio of your saliva is very different than a person who has normal, typical function so that's one of them it's pretty mild and i've had really good result with really good dental hygiene i have almost normal teeth so that's just what you have to do when when you're facing something like this i do have limited a little bit of limited facial motion not major And I do have a really tough time at the dentist in opening my mouth wide as anybody who's had major work done to the face is going to attest to that. That's more the surgery than the cancer. It's just, I don't, my mouth won't open very wide there. The biggest ones, the biggest side effects are some muscle weakness in my neck. And that's from, again, the giant radiation field. So my spine is in the radiation field. And around 2005, so doing the math on that, 2005. So 14, 15 years after I started to get some neuropathy in my, my legs and sometimes my arms. So that's been a constant for the last 15 or so years that is just low level. And if I explain it to somebody, it would, it would be like, I have physical anxiety. Something's always humming, thrumming, moving along all throughout my legs. And so tingling,
0: Wow,
1: a little bit of numbness in the feet. It's, yeah, but, I was going
0: to ask you, tingling? Yeah, yeah, it's
1: mostly tingling. And the, the way to, the, that, to explain the tingling from a whole leg perspective is just, it feels like physical anxiety. And then the other one, which again is fairly small, is just consistent ear ringing in, in that ear where the surgery was right by it and the radiation.
0: Really? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it's pretty loud.
0: Oh, wow.
1: So these are minor,
0: you know, as long as sorry,
1: these are minor, they really are. There's a gentleman named Dr. Brooke. He's an ENT who later had throat cancer. He'll give you the whole litany in his book of all the things that could potentially go wrong. And anytime I feel sorry for myself, I just need to read his book and I'm just fine.
0: So. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you'll have to share the link with us. (laughs) I can do that. Oh, I want to ask you, what was your worst moment in all of it?
1: It was more the surgery, coming up to the surgery than the cancer. And probably because this was the worst moment, the rest of it was a little bit okay. Someone just out of the blue, being kind, out of nowhere, not knowing anything said, how are you today? And this is someone I knew, but not well. And It was right after they had told me you're going to have essentially a six to nine inch scar. So it's right after the surgical consult meeting and I just completely fell apart. And I was so embarrassed because, you know, I'm 19 years old, falling apart on a stranger who doesn't know why I'm doing that. And then I think after that perspective of, okay, I survived that, I'm not going to die. Everything will be okay. It's just going to be rough. So it was a catalyst moment that that's the catalyst right there. Even though it has nothing to do with at that point, I didn't even know I was going to have cancer. And I, I really dealt with most of it pretty well. I think until I would say probably this is common, just some mental health issues at discovering who I am now that I'm essentially 10 years older in a body that's six months older, just the perspective, the shift. I remember going into, um, the waiting room to get radiation, somebody thought I was somebody's granddaughter, you know, just not thinking that would be me there getting treatment.
0: Wow. Well, I love that question. I love asking the question because it it's almost never what people think it's going to be. So mm-hmm. I really appreciate you sharing that and I could completely visualize it. Um, let's flip it. What was your best moment?
1: Oh, um, it's been people I can help. So it's not a moment. With the internet coming online, now we can all find each other. And so that to me is a very big blessing to be able to put my face and my smile and have people who get this diagnosis of you may never smile again, you may have cancer, and to just be there as the, hey, look at me, I look mostly normal and now I'm an older lady living my best life. I've lived my entire life past this cancer, my entire adult life. So it's that, being able to do that, and really be the face of long-term cancer survivorship. Since that mess and the year it took to heal, I trained in martial arts. I can go on roller coasters. I just have to keep my neck strong. I have two children. I never would have thought that would be possible right after diagnosis. I've lived a very full and very mostly normal life. And so it's that.
0: Heather, what is one thing you wish you had known at the very beginning? And you—you you decide when the beginning is. I mean, pri- you know, maybe right when you heard it was actually cancer, or even when you thought it was still a benign tumor that was just going to be surgically removed. What, what's one thing you wish you had known?
1: When you get scared, help somebody else. So, what I would do differently, or how I would react, would be to, with this extra time now that I'm not in school, I would have done some volunteering. In a way that I was able so that I would feel like here I am, I'm making a difference. I'm doing something and it keeps your mind off it because if you have too much time and misused energy, then it, it magnifies what's wrong. So that's any advice I would give to someone who's going through or about to go through something is this is just a different time and different focus for you. And that is one constructive way to handle it.
0: I love that. I love that. Yeah, that's excellent. What is one thing you would do to improve health care in the U.S. and why? And That's so hard
1: because there's not just one. I think that patients and doctors should have more time together. That would be one way to improve healthcare. And I think that the, I would overhaul in our, our entire insurance system. So if I have to pick one thing, that would be what I would do so that not so much pain is on the patient. And I didn't feel it. I was still, I wasn't a minor. I was an adult. My parents went through all the claims and all the things, et cetera. So not only did they have to experience their daughter having cancer, but they had to do so much paperwork. I think it's more streamlined now, but I'm sure it's still painful. And there's still people questioning why you need X or Y or Z on top of the experience that's so emotional that you don't need all that. So that'd be what I would do if I could wave a magic wand.
0: All right. Are you ready for the Thriver Rapid Fire?
1: I must be because I'm here.
0: Okay. Beach, desert, or mountains? Beach. Beach boys, beetles, or rolling stones?
1: Beach boys.
0: What is one word that best describes you? Whimsical. <laughs> Before you die, what is the last song you want to hear? Invincible by Pat
1: Benatar song from the eighties.
0: Oh, okay. Now I know which one you're talking about. (laughs) What about the last meal you want to eat?
1: Chicken Parmesan with, with really good wine.
0: And the last person or people you want to see?
1: Family, my kids, my husband.
0: And the last words you will speak. I did it well. And aside from cancer, you what's one resource you would recommend for cancer patients and caregivers and how can people get in touch with you?
1: I have my own, I'll start with that. I have my own website, which is heathernoggle.com. So I'm pretty easy to find and it has nothing to do with cancer, but there's a contact form on there if people have questions. As far as the one resource, I really, again, go to the internet because I think the internet has just revolutionized everything. I work online. I've worked from home for forever, specifically on the internet. If you are newly diagnosed, I would go to Ironman Angels. I'm a mentor angel there. And what they do is they will match you up with someone somewhat demographically like you so that you can talk through how this is going to look. And you have a, a stalwart, steady person there to help you through what's happening.
0: It's a wonderful organization. I know them quite quite well. Heather, thank you. It's, it's not very often that I get to interview someone who is such a long-term survivor. And so thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. Thanks for having me.